Hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm Nat. Okay, so we want to welcome Dr. Annette Kim to the podcast, and we are so excited to have you here. Um, Dr. Kim actually was my professor last semester in a class about critical cartography and spatial ethnography. And it was one of my favorite classes that I've taken at USC. Like, it was so different from anything else that I had really experienced, which I really appreciated. It kind of brought a new lens and challenged a lot of what I think conventionally we think we know about mapping and what that tells us and challenged students to really kind of think outside of that Cartesian plane of mapping and think about how alternative forms of mapping can really show populations or communities or phenomena that we wouldn't normally see. And so I think that um, we are just so excited to have her on the show today. Um, a little bit of background, Dr. Kim is PhD and professor in the Price School of Public Policy and now um, going to be faculty at the Rossi School of Art also at USC, and you are also the director of the Spatial Analysis Lab at USC, which is amazing. Um, and yeah, so we just kind of want to have a conversation with you about kind of like your niche within um, this kind of planning policy space, because I do think that it's, it's really unique and really different from anyone else that we have talked to. Um, so I don't know if you wanted to kind of give any other introduction or we can kind of just jump into kind of how you really found your niche within the policy space. Okay, uh, well, thanks so much for inviting me. I, I think this is amazing, the podcast you've developed and the community you've developed online. Um, so how did I get into public policy? It was, it was um, a journey. So um, I was actually an art and architecture major in college, but then I had a social justice awakening uh, my last semester in college uh, because I took a class about apartheid in South Africa, which was the political issue of the day in colleges. And at the same time, in another class, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And that combination just tore my um, views open to kind of structural, institutionalized uh, racism and just so many things um, problematic in our institutions. And so I didn't have any background in that area. So I, it was a long process of learning. Um, and so that kind of led me to getting involved in because of architecture housing issues. Uh, it led me to, um, I mean, I had a passion for um, international development, what's, you know, thinking of this globally. So that's how I, um, well, so I first was just focusing on making more housing, you know, looking at more affordable construction materials in the global south or um, kind of housing programs, nonprofits in the U.S., but then I realized these are system issues that are really, like, I'm doing drops in the bucket um, and so that's how I got interested in learning more about policy, 
um, systems and institutions. I went to grad school like you too and <laughs> was trying to learn. Um, and that's how I got into this space. Yeah. That path is so interesting to me. And I think so many of us share similar experiences that kind of became the catalyst for why we entered this space whether it be, you know, reading or what you learned in undergrad or a personal experience that you had. So I think that's really amazing. And I, I'm so happy with the, with the amazing work you're doing. Um, so you work in a field or in a sector that's related to critical cartography. Could you kind of explain what critical cartography is for those of us who aren't very familiar with it? Sure. It's, it's not a well-known term. Um, so. <laughs> Totally understandable. So uh, with cartography, we're talking about maps and maps um, as we know them today were really uh, developed during, because of the colonialism era where um, empires were staking out territories across the globe. And so they wanted more exact measurements. And so kind of the triangulation of pinpointing location and, and thinking of it as um, Samantha mentioned on a Cartesian plane is really the uh, basics of how we map today. Um, and in those in the early days, it was empires who funded them. Um, they're the ones who made maps. They were experts. In China, it was like a state secret. If you looked at it, you could be killed, you know. So that's kind of the background of it being very um, government related and professional. And so what critical cartography is to counter that. So um, kind of bottom up mapping, everyone can make a map now um, and make alternative claims. So maps in general, what they're what they do is they're a claim. They say this is here. And so each of that, this is taken from Dennis Wood, um, is a powerful proposition that this, there is this thing you're claiming exists and where it does it exist. And that kind of legitimizes its existence. And so um, when, if maps were made for, you know, state projects, what the government is interested in is where is our territories, where are the boundaries, where, you know, only a certain number of things uh, can be mapped in order to be legible. So you, there are many, many things not included in a map and you choose what you make visible, what you make apparent and what you say exists. So with counter cartography, um, other people can make claims about this also is here, or, you know, I am here. Um, and that's how I think of um, critical cartography. It's, it's political. Maps have always been political, but, you know, with the normalization of our um, ways of mapping, it can seem like simple facts, but all maps are political. And um, what critical cartography is um, countering um, who maps and what is mapped, right? and so uh, making alternative claims. Um, so those, that could be things like, um, you know, there's been a real proliferation and creativity and the kinds of maps that are out there people are mapping their emotions their uh, memories their the smells you know you can map so many different kinds of things uh, besides territorial boundaries so um i guess that would be the start 
uh, explaining what I mean by critical cartography. Yeah, I feel like just after taking your class, I was like, I my mind really open to like what is a map and like what can be mapped. Like for your class, I remember you showing examples of like, oh, like in terms of like community engagement with communities, like where do you feel safe within this community? Like draw where you feel safe or like for my project, looking into the Mexican history of Santa Monica in LA, looking at, you know, not just like what is there today, but like what was there and how do we memorial, how do we like keep that alive and really make sure that people don't forget. And I feel like that is something that I had never really considered before. And it's so important, especially moving into like planning roles of how do we get out of just this idea that a map has to be, you know, two-dimensional showing where the road goes or like where the different parcels are, like how do we expand that? And so I really, I really loved, like, I really did love your class so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you loved it. Yeah, yeah. I think um, if we keep doing the same kind of maps, it makes it, it's reifying that that's all that's important to know. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, you know, it's fun to make these other maps, but it's a, also an important step of, um, for example, community organizing, making um, more well known, you know, um, the existence of um, things that are important to your community mm -hmm. that might not be discussed yet in public discourse. And so this mapping process can help the community itself um, kind of have a coherent way message of you know what they value um, and then it can also communicate to the larger public as well and so those are the beginning foundations of um, you know making change that um, these things exist they matter where are they I also think that being able to map different kinds of information can really be helpful, especially in terms of being able to actually visualize certain things. Not everybody is, you know, interested in just reading data. And I think that sometimes it's really amazing that you can actually put data onto a map and make it more of a visual representation of what's happening. And actually, Sam and I, in our very first semester, worked on a project where we had mapped tree equity. And it was really interesting to see that visualization of the, the tree equity in the surrounding area. We did it for LA County and being able to visualize. And then there were other opportunities where you could overlay historical maps like redlined areas. Um, and we've talked about redlining on the podcast before, but that type of visualization is so impactful because I feel like it sends a very clear message in terms of you're not just displaying data, but you're actually showing people visually that these are certain circumstances that are happening in a, in a region. And so I just, I really love this entire concept. And it's, I I wish I had the opportunity to take your class. <laughs> now I, I'm having the fear of missing out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mo, no. Um, well, luckily there's lots of good options um, yeah. here. But yeah, I think there is some, I mean, that there's a power to the map. Like you could say, oh, certain neighborhoods are park poor. But yeah. then when you see it, like, oh my God, there's hardly any trees yeah. you know, in Koreatown or whatever. Um, 
there's some there's a power to it. it makes it seem more real that it actually is the situation and then you can also appreciate um the situation where what did where is this playing out what would it feel like um so yeah i think there's a power to visualizing uh data um and uh by locating it on the map it, by saying it is here there, there's a power to that yeah and I think that you definitely have started to like answer this question and allude to it, but I was just curious, like in your opinion, like the main differences between these alternative counterforms of cartography and mapping practices um, that like you are trying to teach versus kind of what is more mainstream and what is more common. And you also alluded to the fact that like most of what we see in cartography and mapping nowadays um all, do have roots in like colonization and patriarchy and all of these kind of imperialistic ideas mm -hmm. yeah well today um maps you know dennis wood again would say are more ubiquitous than ever i think primarily our cell phones where i mean i look at google maps constantly <laughs> um and that's the vision one view of the world google maps and it's presented by a corporation right and it's people have been um you know, interrogating Google Maps um, because it's so ubiquitous, you know, with their algorithm, sometimes some shops don't exist, you know. And then other times they put in things that are really hard to find. Like I remember the historic Italian street that there aren't a lot of records of was in Google Maps. <laughs> so, so surprised. So, um, yeah, I think we actually, that's the main modern version for most people who aren't in urban planning and looking at you know land use maps or whatever um is the maps on our phone or in news stories now a lot of news media have visualization um animations for news stories and they um often have maps as well and i think um how the main difference between um that kind of corporate cartography and the possibilities with critical cartography is I think that cartography kind of flattens the world. It is based on, you know, our conventions of um, how we map. And um, I think critical cartography opens up other possibilities in, I think, even just the style of map, the way you visualize, you know, I, I in my class, I have you guys spoof maps, make fun of the map to um, realize the conventions that are so embedded in us and to try to let go of them or play with them. Um, and that does the act of uh, opening up, well, who gets to make a map? What is it supposed to look like? And when you say patriotically, you know, what's official and um, legitimate? Does it have to have a certain kind of a tone and what it's supposed to look like? And it doesn't. There could be lots of possibilities. Um, but I think the biggest um, I think this is leading to your next question is, um, you know, what are we critiquing exactly? What could be so important? And I think in our historic context right now, uh, you know, with um, urbanization um, around the globe, you know, is a new human condition. What that means is um, migration. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, marginalized population, and partly they're marginalized through 
um, dehumanization, not seeing them as fully people, and then also being invisible or absent in the map that they don't even exist. And with urbanization, millions of people now have moved to our cities, but we're not thinking about them, we're not imagining them, we're not planning or uh, for them. And so um, I think a critique is to just acknowledge their bodily existence. <laughs> um, it can be a basic critical map act, you know. Um, so I think that's part of um, what I realize unites all my projects is, um, you know, I'm trying to counter the blindness that we live with, that things can be right in front of our nose, but because either of habit or the way we've conceived of things, we don't even notice them. And so that was that's the first exercise I give in the class is to try to notice some something on your everyday path that you hadn't noticed before and to think about why did you not notice it before. And you have already you know, touched on on some of the important aspects of humanity within these type of mapping strategies. Would you want to acknowledge any other aspects that you feel might be missing from policy and planning discussions? Um, I mean, I think we're in an exciting time because a lot of the um, institutions or the way we're doing things are really being questioned. There's a lot of experimentation right now. So I think it's opening up possibilities. But um, what, so one is um, just the, like I was saying, basic facts of who is here um, is uh, an important aspect of humanity. But then I think also how we think of what is important um, in our human existence. You know, I, I was talking to some government officials in Vietnam and and just a couple of weeks ago, and COVID has really altered their way of thinking of city planning, that it's just not economic development at all costs, but quality of life matters too, thinking about how we live and how we live together. Um, so I, I think there are possibilities now for um, a broader understanding of what we're trying to plan for, what kind of life we're imagining is important. Yeah, and I think thinking about COVID and how that's really like shaped, I mean, at least for me coming into this program during COVID and like towards the tail end of like when it was, you know, really bad, even though it's, it's still happening now, it's, it really does like make you think about like critically how we have planned and how we can really improve upon that to improve quality of life, especially like after we had just spent years kind of not being able to have, like fully go outside or see family or see friends and and go out to dinner at a restaurant so it, it is like really interesting coming into planning as that is happening and like this world view kind of about what is important in life is really shifting mm -hmm. at least in my opinion yeah and and i mean when really obvious concrete thing is how we're using public space. So overnight, suddenly 
<laughs> all our regulations were let go. Okay, you could eat outside, you know, and all these restaurants took over, you know, sidewalk space. And that would have taken forever and been a huge political fight were it not for this pandemic disaster, you know, and trying to help them survive. So um, it really opened up, you know, how we see the city and what's possible. It all, I mean, of course, it also opened up um, how deep the inequities are, too. Um, well, I think kind of thinking about your work, um, we would love to kind of just have like a conversation with you about some of the projects that you've worked on. And I remember like hearing about some of the projects that you've worked on, particularly abroad um, and like, visualizing kind of how people are using public space, as you just mentioned, um, were really incredible. So I didn't know if you had some projects that you've worked on that were like particularly impactful or that um, you feel comfortable kind of talking about um, in terms of either in LA or abroad. Sure. Um, you know, I just came back from visiting Vietnam in December and it had been four years since I was able to go because of COVID, et cetera. Um, so it was so good to go back. So maybe I'll talk a little bit about the amazing experience I, I had there. And when you talk about impact, you know, I think when we do impact analysis you know, from the economic point of view, you're trying to see like, is this correlated with that? And you have a specific time frame. And um, now that I'm getting older, I'm seeing things in terms of decades. And um, so I began my engagement with Vietnam in 1996. And so now I can say things like almost 30 years ago, you know, um, and what I, now I think about what is impactful, like what actually matters, what lasts and realizing that um, they can have very long time frames. So um, I had this amazing experience. Um, so I've been going there and I, and I um, did my dissertation in Vietnam, in Ho Chi Minh City, um, looking at the first generation of real estate developers uh, is, is more of a kind of conventional study. But while I was living there for a year, just going in and out of my house and walking around, I realized there's something really wonderful and amazing about life here. And so my second book was about the sidewalks <laughs> in the city, which sounded you know, really boring, but um, I was trying to understand what it was and it was we did a really in-depth study I brought a team of students and partnered with Vietnamese students and we tried to track every single thing that was going on <laughs> in um, sidewalks around town in different areas and what it came to I wasn't intending to study this but of course a lot of it is contest over public space by migrants to the city street vending, which is a common condition in cities around the world because of this global migration um, and economic inequality. So um, so somehow I, I it also led to kind of policy um, discussions and I made a proposal to the city to um, make a tourist pedestrian path that would include street vendors and this was in um the early 2000s and um it got approved by the city and and they 
really liked the idea, but then it got stopped for political reasons. And so I thought, okay, it's dead in the water. Um, and then when I went back this time, there's been a change. And, you know, we're doing this book launch event for the Vietnamese language version of my sidewalk book. And um, it, I kind of had an unexpected surprise meeting with the vice chair of the People's Committee. It's like the second in command of the city. And, um, and he called in all the different transportation officials, et cetera. And, and they um, had really changed. They had been at that original proposal meeting and now they've risen up in leadership. And essentially they're saying all these amazing things like the, their approach before, you know, sidewalk clearance, which um, different uh, governments over the decades have been trying to just clear the sidewalk in order to be modern and Western and like Singapore. Um, they realize that doesn't work. And also that um, we could live together and share this space that after COVID, we realize the equality of life matters and that um, appreciating like the Vietnamese way of living. And I just saw that turn as I was going around town that, you know, I was really afraid that they had wiped out <laughs> the sidewalk life by now, but it was still there. And um, what I also saw were Vietnamese people appreciating their own culture and their way of life. So that instead of trying to catch up or become developed or Western, they realized there are a lot of valuable things of the way we do things that um, we should keep. And so it's been a, a long road. Um, so I, I realized, oh, these seeds I planted a long time ago, now it's the season. Of course, it's not just me, but it's just part of a of different forces. You know, my, I have colleagues in Vietnam who are also trying to um, shape that um, into the public discourse. But we had, I think a lot of it was timing. You know, when I, in 2001, did the first book, um, we did an exhibit and we got coverage on TV and the front page of the largest newspaper. So it seemed impactful then, but then what, you know, <laughs> and, but then it's coming back this discourse. Now I'm hearing younger Vietnamese people saying, um, we value our way of life. You know, we don't want to lose our culture and how can we plan to support that? Um, so in terms of impact, I just see myself as one of many, many people and, you know, I'm just a foreigner, um, but I, I kind of strategically use my position as a foreigner saying, foreigners value <laughs> your culture too we don't want singapore in vietnam you know uh, we want singapore in singapore vietnam vietnam um and uh yeah so i think um i see as samantha knows now i think of working for social change as a longer process as a social reconstruction process of not only laws and policies but what where that emanates from is our um, social construction of what we think is the situation, um, just the basic foundations like who is here, who is part of this discussion, you know, what do we value? Then um, when we have enough of that uh, narrative, which we build with data, with visualization, with culture, with um, narratives, all kinds of narratives, um, that's part of the social change process as well.
I think it's so interesting that you have been talking about this impactful work because Sam and I just got assigned a reading um, from a book called The Happy City. And that book really does talk about the way in which we try so often, especially around the globe, to mimic other spaces rather than acknowledging the strengths and the values of that particular space. And also really kind of criticizes the way that we look at the built environment and who we're building spaces for. And truly your work is invaluable because I I do feel that often we hear around the globe that there are so many individuals who are saying, oh, well, we need to build, you know, like like they are in another space and and that's how we're going to become successful or that's how we're going to become happier that's how we're going to build up our community and in reality i think it really does depend on the community's values and what the community wants rather than just trying to look outward at other spaces and so i just think i really loved how you framed your your work and what you're doing because when reading the happy city one of the biggest things was our built environment and the space that the public is utilizing is really important in terms of their collaboration with their community, their roots, how they feel about the public space that they're they're in and whether they actually feel that that public space is for them. And so I, I really just have to say, I, I love the work that you're doing and I really admire, um, you know, everything that you just, you just discussed. And if you wouldn't mind, could you, um, state the title of the book that you uh, wrote on sidewalks just for viewers if they if they want to read that or refer to it sure it's called sidewalk city it was published by university of chicago press and i'm sad to see it's out of print now so you have to (laughs) find uh, older copies or library or something um i think you could get digital versions of it that's still Mm -hmm. available but um yeah it's called sidewalk city and yeah thank you um so much that sounds like a very similar thesis and um i i hope that's also taught more broadly in our planning program uh, education as well as others because i did notice when i went to um, student final projects in previous years it seemed like they were had picked up the message to copy and paste from one place to another mm-hmm. so i'd go and like okay we're gonna have parklets like san francisco everywhere the last year it was like Highline from New York City everywhere you know it's like no that wasn't the point point was each of those solutions were a creative solution to the local situation and can we get the principles of like rethinking public space or um, the legacy of the architectures we have not let's recreate the Highline in other places right yeah so I hope we can do a better job in uh, urban planning education. And, you know, Samantha knows I keep pushing. It's okay to be creative. Please be creative. (laughs) It doesn't, you know, you're not legitimate by following, you know, some previous ways of doing things. There isn't some canon or code you're supposed to be um, regurgitating, you know, Um, we need new creative solutions. Absolutely. Also, this is kind of an aside, but I 
it's so funny that you brought up Singapore and Vietnam, like kind of as two opposing kind of forces, because I actually studied abroad in Singapore. And while I was there, went to Vietnam. And I wrote a paper for one of my classes about sidewalk culture in Vietnam. And I referenced your book. And I'm just now thinking about that as you were talking about it. I was like, <laughs> wait, I totally read that book. <laughs> and talked about it in my paper when I, because I like, when I was there, I was like, wow, this is like, people are doing everything on the sidewalks. Like they're brushing their teeth. They're playing with their, they're eating, they're playing games. They're, you know, there's full businesses that are just on the sidewalk. And then the, like the home, <laughs> yes, like everything. And then I was talking to my professor in that class and I'm pretty sure that he had referenced me to your book. And here we're first, we'll, we are full circle, which is crazy. <laughs> Well, I just realized it now. Huh? That's so funny. Yeah, because I I don't know why I didn't think about that before, but I guess it was just like you telling that story and then me remembering that I had actually written a paper like very heavily influenced by the work that you did in Ho Chi Minh, except that I went to Hanoi. And so I saw it a little bit like in a different city, but same same principle and same same country. But yeah. yeah. Well, that's good to know. You know, yeah, when I was on that trip to Vietnam, I was really shocked because when I was having this meeting with the different government government officials, they actually read my books and they were like quoting things. And I had forgotten even parts of what I had written. They're like, it's in your book. <laughs> and so um, it's kind of heartening to think, oh, people might actually read these things and have a um, impact and uh but especially there you know when we did the book launch event I was really you know I kept looking out at the audience and they were so earnest like they were really civically engaged they really wanted to find answers for their city for their country and I thought that was very hopeful that um the next generation really wants to make improvements um for them the whole you know public Amazing. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. Um, it has been a really amazing conversation and definitely very different from any other, I think, conversations yeah. that we've had, um, both like between the two of us and with other folks that have come on the podcast. So we really appreciate you taking the time to just kind of chat with us and tell us a little bit about your work and kind of your ethos, I guess, within the field. Um, well, thanks so much for having me and thank you for having this podcast. I hope, um, you know, it also makes an impact. You know, I think you have a really neat uh, um, audience engagement. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not. <laughs>